Award-winning TV reporter Mara Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, CNN legal analyst Laura Coates joins us to discuss former President Trump's new online platform. Will he use it as an end run around a social media ban? Plus, would government-funded newsrooms save us from fake news? And we celebrate big news for two friends of the show. Laura, thank you for joining us. Exciting to be here. It's a nice change of events to see all of you and hear all of you. I'm a big fan of all of your work, so hello. Well, like likewise, likewise. I loved um, your coverage um, of the Chauvin trial. You know, I've always found you to be very impressive, but I just thought you and and uh, Chief Ramsey together were such a powerful combination. You always provided a lot of great insight. So, you know, I just I think you did a fantastic job covering the trial. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was something that. I can only imagine being a juror in that room, right? Because I I think the whole nation was like, we were reeling with the entire experience, right? It it was so personal for so many people, so traumatic, so invested that everyone was sort of on bated breath the entire experience. So a little bit of housekeeping. Wes is sick. We have some congratulations. (laughs) Keith doesn't believe he's sick. He thinks he's hungover. I'm the sick the, the sick of getting better, right? It's my, I'm just lightheaded post the second Pfizer vaccine that I got in the arm yesterday. And so I'm just a little, I'm just feeling a little, little woozy. And I had to be on camera all day today. So I had to pretend not to. Then, then I'm, then, then I'm going to amend and restate my earlier comments because I actually had the second Moderna uh, vaccine on Friday. Whoop my entire black ass. Just, Did it really? Oh my goodness gracious. I woke up at like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning feeling like somebody whooped my ass with a bag of bricks. I'm just thinking to myself, Keith, if if that's what the shot did to you, imagine if you had gotten COVID. So Well well, absolutely. It was it was a it was a hundred percent worth it and, and and that was the first thing that I thought that like, man, if this was this what the shot does, I can't like I, this is a whole separate conversation and we don't need to get into anti-vaxxers and like the, all, all of the reasons that people are are vaccine skeptical and, and all of that. We, we actually had a show on that. Y'all should check that out in, in our archive. But um, but man, like I don't want nothing that felt no worse than that shot. When I had COVID, it was bad allergies. Like, you know, when my eyes were swollen, I was fatigued. and exa- I mean, I was having trouble getting out of bed. But I wasn't, I never coughed. I was never, I didn't have any respiratory at all, which is the worst part. The cough is supposed to be terrible. Laura, did you have any side effects? I didn't have any. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I have two, I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. So the idea of being tired, I would never have known if that was an issue. That, <laughs> the idea of fatigue, that would have just been par for the course. But I didn't, I actually lucked out. I did Pfizer. I didn't have any reaction after the first ones. I had that same soreness in the arm or the second mm-hmm. time. But I remember people telling me, that the second one could knock you out. And so I remember being mm-hmm. like, I'm going to schedule it. I was able to schedule it on like a Friday. And then I used it to go to bed at like 4 p.m. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to make sure it's in case. But I left out, like you're talking about, Wes, who've had a very light case, I guess you call it, in terms of COVID-19. And then now the shot has a different impact. So I'm, I hope, I wish you the best of luck in what you're going through. But I'm, I'm telling you, like, I just look at this and think, is that phrase, but for the grace of God, go I, because... Mm-hmm. I'm looking at India and looking at what happened. The words apocalyptic are coming out and Mm -hmm. what's happening. And I think, okay, well, I'm going to be a little bit tired. I'll do it. 
I'll take it. I mean, even when I had COVID, I had colleagues who were in the hospital at the same time. Wow. I mean, where we all kind of got at the same time <laughs> thinking of work happy hour <laughs> right at the very beginning. And, you know, like I said, I was sleepy for a few days and I had colleagues in the hospital. Um, and then mm. I had a, my grandmother got it at one point. She was totally fine. I mean, we're talking about a black woman in her 80s with a lot of Southern cooking in her, her background, not of the, the greatest of, of health, perhaps. Um, and then I had an aunt, significantly younger, who was, who was really torn up when she got it. And so it really can be unpredictable. I think over time, as we learn more about the virus, we'll understand this better. But I think one of the great mysteries is why. Why does it affect people so differently? Because my father got COVID. My father is 82. He has asthma. He has beaten cancer three times. So this is someone who, in terms of like lists of comorbidities and likelihood of developing complications, was very high. I was terrified that he was just going to nosedive. And every day that I checked on him, he was like, I mean, I don't feel great. I'm really, really exhausted. I could hear in his voice he was exhausted, but he had no trouble breathing. We sent sent him the pulse oximeter. His um, blood oxygen level was above like 98% the entire time he had COVID. So who knows why in some cases it goes that way. And then like Mara Gay was on the show. She's an athlete. She's a runner. She is young, fit, takes great care of herself. And she has been suffering for months with the um, with the complications of COVID. So I think that the, those answers will reveal themselves in time. To your point also, we don't know what the long-term effects are. We, all, we also don't know, it, you know, does this come back to bite me 50 years down the line that, that mm. having had it at some point makes you more susceptible to something later or less likely to, less able to respond. We just don't know anything about it long-term at all, what the long-term effects are. Yeah. Um, some happy news. Friend of the show, uh, friend to us here, Yamiche Cinder has been named to uh, PBS Washington Week. She is the new anchor of the show. So congratulations to her. I wish we had like a cheering, like an applause sound effect. like our own so we're very, very happy for her. So congratulations to her. And Keith, I think there was uh, there were flowers you wanted to give too. Absolutely. Got to give flowers to Kevin Merida, uh, former managing editor at the Washington Post, now uh, and, and former executive editor, uh, excuse me, editor-in-chief at ESPN's The Undefeated, now goes to lead the Los Angeles Times as executive editor. So we will have an African-American man running the second largest newspaper in the country newspaper that's wildly important it, it it's sort of essentially the west coast version of, of the new york times the paper of record if you're west of the mississippi uh very very influential paper but has seen a lot of turmoil in terms of the management and in terms of ownership in the last uh decade or so so kevin merida comes in to bring some stability to that paper uh can't think of a better person who i've met in journalism to, to lead that paper um, brings has all the credentials, has done everything you could do in the business. Um, really wish him a lot of success. Hope he can come on the show. I think we can find we can we can reach him. We can we can find some way. We can reach him. Exactly. We can reach him. We can reach him.
The LA Times, I feel like, has dealt with a lot of their issues head on and very publicly in a way that I respect a lot. They did this kind of internal autopsy of their history of racial discrimination at the paper. Um, This appears to be kind of part of their um, efforts to address those issues and to do some course correction. So, you know, you, you have to you have to give credit where credit is due. And I was really, really pleased to see how public they were with what they found, because I think one of the big problems, and this has always been my pet peeve, is that we're in the business of journalism, it really irritates me when journalistic organizations try to hide information or withhold information from the public, because we would never allow that from public officials or from, you know, publicly traded corporations. So when, for example, news organizations refuse to provide their diversity numbers, which NABJ asks for every year, and a lot of the news organizations they ask refuse flat out to provide those numbers, it drives me up the wall because we're journalists. We're supposed to welcome the light. And so the LA Times has really been walking the walk. One thing that's really interesting to watch the LA Times, right? Because I, I do think, you know, there's kind of an East Coast bias in media in general. And I think we can understate the reach and the import of that paper. It really is New York Times of the West Coast of this country. Um, but one thing that gets o- overlooked sometimes is the ownership out there. Patrick Shunshong mm-hmm. is an Asian American man, billionaire doctor who practiced and lived in South Africa in amid apartheid. He was a doctor in Soweto um, in his practice, right? And so it's, I remember Kevin and I were talking about this and he, and he said to me once, and he, he said it, you know, I don't feel like I'm exposing anything. He said this publicly since, right? That of all of the media owners out there, this is really interesting because you're going to work for a family of color that gets these ideas, that has the money, that has a global perspective in a way that's different. Uh, that literally came up their formative years in apartheid South Africa. Um, And so I I just think the LA Times is a fascinating place right now. The news organization itself is run by journalists, but the but the ownership by and large is not. I mean, it's it's hedge hedge funds, managers, it's families that come from wealth, it's industrialists of a bygone era, et cetera, et cetera. So like these are people who are not into transparency at all. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is coming from a background like the current owner of the Los Angeles Times does, where you may have some sensitivity and some exposure to what happens in communities of color, where you aren't coming from the same background, which is primarily white, primarily rich, and primarily male, that most of the executives running major newspapers and major media organizations broadly in this country come from. from. So that does make something of, of a difference. I thought it was interesting, Wes, because when you were talking about the idea of the Soweto background, I think to myself, is it about transparency or is it also about knowing that a nation benefits from truth reconciliation? I mean, the idea of that being part of the fabric of post-apartheid South Africa, being able to confront, acknowledge, and have these sort of public hearings on these issues are a way to essentially say and confirm, look, hiding behind or shielding or having the conversation that we continue to have in this country about whether the past racism in America is indicative of the future racism in America or present day, as opposed to just simply saying, let's confront what's a very obvious aspect of our American culture, what has been historically, and how do we get beyond it? I find so many times that uh, news organizations can hide behind the idea of, well, we don't want to be the news. We want to report the news. And that's why we're not providing the information, because the more we're focusing on what's happening in intra-company areas, the less you're able to have the antiseptic of light on areas that really matter to you. And so it's really us being 
um, selfless in our approach to not focusing on ourselves. And I think there's something to be said as you're talking about, about the idea of recognizing that if the, if the filters through which we're getting information are asking for us to assume objectivity and credibility and that they are not themselves filtering the information through a lens that protects themselves, then they have to offer that similar transparency. Otherwise, we fall victim again, time and again, to thinking that our news is being curated as opposed to being reported mm-hmm. with you know, an eye toward self-preservation. It's not just about whether or not we're willing to be tran- transparent about the, about the role, it's about acknowledging the complicity Right. Because because many American newspapers, not every American newspaper, but certainly many American newspapers, probably the majority of American newspapers in the South um, and, and also as well as many in, in the North. Is, and, as and well. TV and radio. Um, it's all, have, all and, news and TV and radio have the have the have the 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 terrible history of have of having been complicit in some of the worst chapters in history, right? You see on right there on the front page of the newspaper, the coverage of a lynching, right? But we don't have to go that far back, Keith. We can go back to 2016 and look at the creation of Donald Trump as a as a candidate. He was a media creation. Correct. Absolutely correct. Well, and the, right? um, the, so, the insistence from some of those prominent journalists and commentators in our industry that they refuse to believe, they would probably boast, they refuse to believe the animating factor of the Trump uh, base could be issues of race. Uh, that they 100%. I refuse to believe X million people are racist. And so I'm dis- discounting this, right? To date, right. right? You go back half a step further, because what you can say is, okay, maybe that's so that's so fresh, it's so new, people aren't introspective enough. Today, we, we still have very little grappling in mainstream media and journalism with the Tea Party. You know, look at the money Biden's spending right now, and there are not rallies in the streets. Uh, what, what happened to the millions of aggrieved white Americans amid economic calamity who are so concerned about the debt and the deficit? Here we are in the midst of an economic downturn, a global pandemic, that if, if you are down and out, you're as down and out now as you've been at any point in, in our recent history. And we have an administration proposing spending amounts of money whether you want, whether you think they are good, it's good or not on the merits, proposing massive government spending bills, and I've seen not not one "Don't tread on me" flag anywhere, and, and so we still have a difficulty, despite the fact that study after study after study after study has found that race was a key animating factor of the Tea Party, both the racial beliefs of the Tea Party members as well as the animus towards Barack Obama, the first black president. The average the average political reporter wouldn't feel comfortable acknowledging directly, well, that, of course, race was a major factor in the Tea Party. There also are not a lot of mechanisms to call out the media and people in glass houses don't throw stones. So if you know that your newsroom is not nearly as diverse as it should be, certainly doesn't reflect the the community that you're serving, certainly doesn't reflect the country, you're not then going to go after the newsroom across the street or across town or across the country for the same violations because you don't want anybody turning that, that lens onto you. So with the exception of social media, there are really very few ways to call out the press. Who 
calls out the person with the biggest megaphone. And very few people have an understanding of what's happening behind the curtain. They don't know what newsrooms look like. In recent years, we've started to see photos with bylines, which I think is tremendously helpful because I really want to know who's covering my news. Um, in television news, you see reporters, those are the people in front of the camera, but you don't see the puppet masters behind the scenes pulling the strings. You don't know what they look like. You don't know what that makeup is like. And that's a huge part of the problem is that A, the public doesn't know, and B, there's really no way to call out those who are not living up to um, what they should be. But then you've got this whole body of law, defamation and libel, where it's continuing to develop to try to figure out how to hold people accountable. But it's always this sort of patchwork. It's not an overhaul. It's about case by case, those who have deep enough pockets to be able to endure litigation, which that's a, already a select minority of people who are able to have the financing, to be able to have the deep pocket lawyers who will go long term with these cases. And then at the end, be able to meet these burdens, these discussions about how social media is you're talking about interplays to figure out, well, who's really a public figure and who's not, and about, hey, in a 24-7 news cycle, do we want to give some sort of grace to newspapers or media outlets as they're trying to develop the story and break a story? Is there going to be the same burden of getting it right, per se? And I, I often wonder, especially because this idea of libel laws in this country has been something that's been talked about from by the most liberal to the most conservatives. Donald Trump was a big advocate about trying to go behind and pierce this veil to get information. You've got the defamation suits happening right now in terms of the big lie at different organizations. And it's interesting to have the same common thread, the same law that's being used and described differently at different sides of the aisle, not only politically, but those who often have benefited from the media and those who are trying to silence the media on these issues. And I just often wonder where will the balance be? Where is that sort of unique sweet spot where you've got the appetite from the consumer to have information immediately, balanced against the burden of getting it right, not wanting to be bested. And then you've got this idea of the attention span of the American people of the globe, where we only think about things, not in terms of that inverted pyramid we all learned about growing up from columns, but the idea of our attention span is characters long at this point now. Don't give me a paragraph. I want all the characters involved and then I go away. And so when you think about all these things combined, you know, you talk about the media's candidates of different uh, of politicians, but it's also the appetite of those for clickbait and the susceptibility that we all have as journalists when the headlines become that clickbait as opposed to informing what happens later. And I just constantly grapple with, I wonder if you all do too, grapple with the idea of um, particularly on facts that really have not two sides of an issue. Mm -hmm. How do you strike the balance of informing before you influence? I'm learning very much now through this podcast and through my other podcast is, you know, you're paying attention to all of the analytics. And so there's this constant, you know, I feel a tension between what I know is going to get the most attention, whether it's the pull quote that we post on Twitter or the clip that we choose to promote on Twitter. And it's the tension between that and not being misleading. If I was divorced from the idea of, of being of not being misleading, if I didn't care about that, then I could go 10 times harder. You know, you can be accurate and still be incredibly misleading. And beyond accuracy, even, you, you, there's, there's this sense also of the prioritization of what matters and what does not, because the internet flattens everything. So mm -hmm. today, 
we're all be we'll all be reading about Kevin McCarthy making comments about Liz Cheney, uh, as will my mom and my aunts. A thing that actually functionally doesn't matter at all, right? Like, like that everything has become politics. Everything's about the minutia of politics. What the studies have found consistently is that the more intensely you care about politics, the less charitable, reasonable, and objective you are about any issue, no matter what it is. Is that true? Yes. Like the more intensely partisan you are, the less likely you are to accurately describe the views and beliefs of the other people. So like an intense Republican literally could not describe the beliefs of a Democrat and vice versa, right? In like a real accurate way that is generous meaning accurate, right? That is like, no, this is what they truly believe. If someone's like a media junkie, media junkie, like they sit in front of cable news all day, every day, like we know that's going to make them crazy. Like we know that's not how we know Mm -hmm. like you should not do nothing but consume us. That is not going to be a good thing for you, for your intellect, for your your blood pressure, (laughs) your sense of perspective in the world, like your like your understanding of what matters and what does not. And like, I would like to live in a world where that's not true, right? That's not true of like, books broadly we're like well i mean if you just live in the library all the time you're gonna become a crazy well, no that's not true right you'll just be really well read well if you listen to too much music you're gonna be well no you just you just know music but if we wanted that same world west for news it would have to be government funded you have to separate it from profit incentives that's the only way that you get back to basics journalism that is about the facts and informing the public. That's a public service. Correct, but the, but the problem with that obviously is if government, if one political party, if a person in power had too much influence over how I got paid or how Mara got paid or how we how much funding you know Laura could have to, to, to do her show or to, or to cover a story or whatever the case is, that we then would lose some in, some independence, right? And we have certainly seen a movement in this country over the last several administrations. And people will point to the Trump administration and all of his attacks on, on the media, but the, but the Obama administration, frankly, was not very kind to media behind the scenes. And I would like to quickly talk about Donald Trump. And one of the big reasons I want to talk about Donald Trump is because he gets ratings. So now me, as executive producer of the show, I've fallen into the same trap that everybody else in the media fell into because every time we talk about Donald Trump, our numbers are better. So it, this like kind of fits into what we've been discussing because one of the big reasons I want to talk about him is because people respond to that. But there is actually some news on that front. He has now launched his own platform, which he launched in April and he'd been posting like some blog posts, but now he seems to be, you know, ramping it up. So he has posted this video. It's kind of this campaign style video that, you know, calls his new website, the, the true beacon of freedom. And you can now sign up for status updates. They're shareable now. So you can share them on Twitter. You can share them on Facebook. It seems that he's uh, appealing to you know his followers to now do the work for him. It felt like he was too quiet. And with someone like him, they don't go away quietly. The reason that it generates is because there is the appetite and there is some comfort in the viewership of audiences to be able to have sort of confirmation bias about a ro- wide range of topics. Not everybody endeavors, unfortunately, in terms of an information age we're in, endeavors to get the full story. They just oftentimes wanna have confirmation. And so it's very incumbent on all of us to make sure that we get people out of that that habit of just only, only confirming what they wanted to hear as opposed to what actual truth looks like. We're talking about Trump and is he still a powerhouse? He absolutely is because he's still keenly aware of the psychology 
of being a threat, of not having people understand what his motives are. He looms as a big, large shadow for the Republican Party about whether he will be a 2024 candidate, whether he is a kingmaker or not. And so he's aware of this idea of being in the shadows and lurking and knowing that people are saying, gosh, he's so quiet. I wonder what he's thinking. And then they lean in even more. And so then they almost are you know, dehydrated with thirst, trying to figure out what's he been up to. And so I feel like he played, he's very well aware of this game, is able to do so. But, you know, it's not just him, he's not playing by himself on the sidelines. There are people in his party, there are people on the Democratic side as well, there are people in media who are also having an appetite to bring in his viewpoint. And if he were just a former president, you know, we hear from former presidents quite often about a variety of issues, but something about those who have not essentially said, that I am done with the, with the office, that I am done with being the kingmaker until it's time for me to actually endorse somebody. And even then I might wait until a DNC nomination truly confirms it and, and, and the like. So I think he absolutely still is, as long as he has people guessing what he's thinking, what his plans are, what his intentions are, he allows his followers and those who are not his followers to create and add on to the legacy, the, the legend of, of it all, and it benefits him. Trump still has influence. He's an unpredictable guy who, thri who thrives on crazy. And one of the, one of the, um, one of the Dark Knight movies, I think it was the, I want to say it was maybe the first, the first one, maybe Heath Ledger, Dark, Dark Knight, if I remember right, there was a line in a movie where, where, uh, where the Joker says, some people just want to, want to watch the world burn. Right. Like this is this is a guy who just who, th who thrives on, on the chaos and the chaos of it. And one of the reasons why the Joker's a good villain is because we can never really point to the Joker's motivations in what he does. He just causes chaos and confusion. He's not really he's not a bank robber. He's not, you know, a terrorist type. He's not out for you know, international this nuanced psychological analysis. Yes, but to but but up until that point, up until that movie, we didn't we didn't know. It was the the Joker was just like running around, running amok, doing doing whatever he did, right? And so somewhere in Donald Trump's mind, maybe there's an origin story. I mean the small hands, the long ties, I mean Hey, I'm just, I'm not doing this with you today. Back to your Joker analogy, please, Keith. Go ahead. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the save. I appreciate you. The question is, do we respond to him the way we responded to him the first time? The way we responded to him the first time was absolutely wrong. Why was he on 60 Minutes giving, being, being given a platform for birtherism? Why was that a thing? That That's, was everywhere, like Keith. You can't single out sixty minutes. I remember no, no, being. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I singled out sixty minutes because that was the interview that popped in, but that popped into my brain. But sixty minutes as a proxy for what we were doing in the business broadly, right, leading up to twenty to twenty sixteen, that there was nobody would appear to have been saying, "This is giving this guy and these ideas." Too much attention is dangerous. We have the opportunity now, and I think that towards the end of his term, many new, many networks, many news organizations had started to correct that. Had started to had started to say. I remember, um, you know, watching some of the coverage of of 
his speeches after January 6th. And news organizations were saying very directly, when he veers into the big lie, we're gonna cut we're gonna cut him off. We're not gonna carry it live. Yeah. I feel like he, there were moments people doing. were doing fact check. I mean, I do, I hear you, but there were instances on, I think across the board, well, maybe not entirely across the board, but where fact checking became part of the American lexicon for any viewer who was watching any of the speeches, anything else, because that was going to be the expectation that there were statements he was going to make. And this isn't just applied to Trump. The fact checking is applied to a number of other people, candidates, um, members of Congress, congressional candidates as well. Should the news organizations be preempting with the expectation that they will only provide slices and segments and little snippets along with the fact checking? Or at some point, does do reporters need to report and then have the opportunity to correct and illuminate on issues. And so I find that tension still continues today because fact checking still continues. Well, Laura, we're gonna let you have the last word on that. I do have one very quick, important question for you before you go. Are we gonna see you guest hosting Jeopardy? <laughs> Bye. What, what? <laughs> Alex Trebek mentioned you by name. The people want it. Well, that's so lovely. And I, I love that show. And I'm so excited to see the guest hosts that have been there. I um, have, I, I'm not one of them. And, um, but I, I, I welcome, welcome all that are doing it. It's a, I'm a lifelong fan. Sorry to have seen Alex Trebek go. For me, he'll always be the host of Jeopardy. I think some popular black podcast needs to start making some noise about the fact that the woman, Alex Trebek, named by name, has not been asked to guest host yet. That's a big problem. problem. Wouldn't it have been nice if I'd had the opportunity? Uh, it's not too late. Would you be campaigning for host of Jeopardy, though? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. My iPhone just stopped all yeah, of a sudden. We're... I don't know what happened. Mm. I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Some, keep the fuzzy. Wes, Mara, bye. <laughs> all right, Laura, thank you. We're not going to make our guests uncomfortable anymore. Thank you so oh, much for being Thank you so here. much for being thank a part. I'm, I'm so glad to talk to all of you. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of this podcast. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.